This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. My name is Zach Lutz. If you don't know me, I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series in Zechariah. He's an Old Testament prophet, uh, kind of near the end of your Old Testament, probably right near the middle of your Bible, more or less. And today we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 5. Uh, and I, I wanted to just acknowledge that we as Christians, uh, especially in church, we tend to talk a lot about sin. You've probably all heard this word, uh, sin, you know. Uh, here's a technical definition. Any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And although I think we, we think a lot about uh, sin as Christians, what we struggle with maybe more than the sins themselves or understanding what sin is and isn't is the consequences of sin. And an example that came to mind is that recently I've been spending time with my extended family. I've been spending time with the extended family of others. It's become very apparent to me uh, that the consequences of sin are very clear in the midst of our family systems. I tried to think of some examples that I could share with you. None of them seemed exactly appropriate. So I'm going to just invite you all in this thought experiment to think of your own family systems, okay? And I want you to think of the consequences of sin in three ways. I want you to think of uh, those times where you have sinned against family members. And now every time you see them, there's that little twinge of like, are we good? Are things right? I'm still kind of carrying around this, this weight of what I did against them. I can't just pick up the phone and call them like I used to. Now sending the text, it's, it's kind of, I'm thinking twice. You guys all have one of those? The next one is the times that you've been sinned against by a family member. And I actually think these are much easier to think about because we're much more aware of the way that we've been sinned against than we are willing to acknowledge the ways that we've sinned against others. But think of those times that uh, family members have sinned against you, where you've had the burden of trying to forgive them, and now it's difficult to be around them, right? It feels like you've forgiven them like 40,000 times, and now you've got to do it again. And you're trying to remember that saying of Jesus, he's like, 70 times seven? Are we there yet? Now, the last thing, the ways that we experience the consequences of sin in our extended families uh, tends to be those consequences of sin that we can't quite peg to someone's responsibility. Sudden death. They're just gone out of our lives. It's the consequence of living in a fallen world, a world that's touched by sin, and yet we can't quite peg the culpability on any one person, usually. So if you guys kind of have those ideas about experiencing the consequences of sin in our lives. I think the inevitable question we all want to ask is what is God doing about it? What is God doing about the consequences of sin? Because as much as we read this Bible and we talk about it in church, the consequences of sin still seem very real in my life. They don't seem to be diminishing. In some ways, they may even seem to be getting worse. The Bible says that all the pain in the whole world, everything sad, every injustice, even mistakes that cause misunderstandings and offend, all of these things happen because of sin. If God really is sovereign, if he really is powerful, why does he continue allowing sin to reign? 
Why does he continue allowing for children to die, for lies and betrayal to happen? Does he really care, and will he do anything about it? I believe that the Bible answers these questions, maybe not all at once, but that it does. And I believe that in our passage today, in relation to sin, we're going to learn three ways that God responds, that God speaks against sin, that God sees all sin, and that God curses sin. And these are going to be our three points today. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base." This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. I think one of the most poignant ways that we experience these consequences of sin, like I mentioned, is in our extended families. When we have sinned against others, when we've been sinned against, or when we experience uh, the consequences of living living in a fallen world. And Like I said, I believe that God says something about it, even in these crazy visions of a flying scroll and a woman in a basket. We're going to try to unpack this basket. No, just a little. We don't want wickedness to come out. Uh, No, but we're going to try to uh, understand these visions in light of what Zechariah's people are experiencing. Now, I I do have to be honest. It might feel like, if you've been here for our sermon series on Zechariah, that we've been talking about the same thing every week. And you know what? We kind of have. Zechariah is very concerned, and his people are very concerned with understanding whether or not God actually responds to sin, whether God actually hears them, whether he sees what is going on, and whether he's going to do anything about it. And you know what? I think if Zechariah has to say it to his people over and over and over again, I think we are no different. And we need to hear it over and over and over again in slightly different ways, with slightly different visions. And so this first vision that we get is one of a flying scroll. And this is kind of a fascinating image because it's really big. If you've got a Bible with footnotes in it, it'll tell you uh, that a cubit is about 18 inches or so. And so it's like 30 feet by 50 feet. It's more like a billboard than a scroll. You know, like we think of a scroll like this, but it's, it's, like, a, it's like a billboard, right? And this billboard has a curse written on it. On one side, there's a curse directed towards those who steal, and on the other side, those who swear falsely or who lie. 
The first thing that we see in this vision is a vision of God's word condemning two sins on a giant billboard flying through the air. What does this mean? Well, we're just going to try to go step by step. And I think it's interesting that stealing and swearing falsely or lying are the two sins that are focused on. It seems that these sins are serious enough to warrant direct address and that in Zechariah's time in particular, they're being transgressed in particular ways. And you know what? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know what? I'm guilty of a lot of things, Pastor Zach, but I never steal. You know, I don't, I don't steal things. But I wanted to read kind of an old definition of stealing. And actually, I, uh, I printed off an insert that's going to be in your bulletin, but I didn't get it to the ushers in time to put them in there, so not all of you got them. There's going to be some there on that back table uh, if you want to grab one on your way out, because this definition I'm about to read is kind of long, and it uses some old language because it's like 400 years old or something like that. But I thought it was important because it helps describe what stealing is really like. So if you have it with you, you can follow along. If not, listen carefully. Stealing consists of any theft, robbery, man-stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen. Fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depopulations, Engrossing commodities to enhance the price. Unlawful callings and all other unjust or sinful ways of talking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or of enriching ourselves. Covetousness. Inordinate prizing and affecting of worldly goods. Distrustful and distracting cares and studies and getting, keeping, and using them. Envying at the prosperity of others as likewise idleness prodigality. Now, I, I'm just going to take a side here. I had to look up the, what this word prodigality means because I didn't know what it meant. I don't know if you guys know what it means. Here's what it means. I wrote it down. Wasteful extravagance and spending. Wasteful gaming in all the ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate and defraud ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God has given us. This is a really long definition, Right? Uh, and if you have the little handout, it says the Westminster Larger Catechism. The shorter catechism, which we'll sometimes read from, was actually meant for children. Uh, but 400 years ago, this is what adults were expected to read and know what all the words meant. Needed the dictionary nearby. Um, but this last phrase, I think, is very important. The prejudice of our own outward estate and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God has given us. The essence behind stealing is that we want to protect what is ours at all costs. And we do not want to receive what God has given us. You know, it's interesting. I would generally uh, consider myself as a person who does not steal. And yet, if you remember last week, I told this story about having Joaquin in the back seat, and I was trying to get a Marbete for my car. Um, which is like renewing the license and tags, you know, and I need to get this sticker, and we had to wait in line, and it was long. Well, to finish this story, the car did not pass inspection, and the shop owner said, but for 30 more dollars, it will pass. I paid the $30, and we chuckle because we kind of understand the situation, and we understand what's at play, but the law of God is clear. 
And bribery is not the way that it's supposed to be. Or extortion, however you want to think about it. What about swearing falsely by God's name, lying? Uh, You could say, in some sense, swearing falsely by God's name uh, could be uh, an infraction of the commandment that says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Um, But I'm going to focus on the ninth commandment, uh, thou shall not bear false witness um, or lie. So I'm going to focus on that one. The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to wrong meaning, or in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. And it continues. I'm not going to read the rest of this one. It's long in there. I think we all know we're pretty good at lying. And I think if we were really honest with ourselves, most of us would acknowledge that lying sometimes almost comes easier than telling the truth. The point I'm trying to get across is, Even with these two sins that are written on both sides of this scroll, it is written on a billboard in the sky that we have participated in the sin of the world. We have stolen and we have lied. You and me, we've participated in making this a worse place. And we like to tell ourselves all the times about how we've given money to charitable causes. Even here, we love to tell the stories about how we've been helping our neighbors. Like here at this church, we like to talk about how uh, we've been helping at Timote and um, in in La Hormiga. And I'm not saying that these are wrong or to share or to talk about what we are doing in this world. But as soon as we think of ourselves as better because we have done these things, as soon as we think that we are above the stealing and lying that is proclaimed throughout all of the earth, we've made a grave mistake. Let us never make the mistake of thinking that the billboard of God's word flying overhead doesn't apply to you and doesn't apply to me. Let us never make the mistake of thinking that we shouldn't read God's word carefully for what it says about how we're supposed to live in this world. Let us never make the mistake of thinking that we are innocent or that God's word was too difficult to read and understand. Here's something I've been thinking about recently. God's word is very clear about how we're supposed to behave. And we still can't do it very well. Now, to be sure, um, we struggle to know what God wants us to do. There are certain decisions that are difficult for us to make. Because all things being equal, we're not sure which one to choose. But how to behave in any particular circumstance, how to love our enemies, how to sacrifice ourselves for others, how to listen before speaking, how to restrain anger, these things are abundantly clear. In fact, they're written in mostly Ten Commandments that many of us memorized as children. It's a giant billboard in the sky. We just don't want to do it. The first point that we learn about God's response to sin is that God speaks to us in words that is clear to understand what sin is and what sin isn't. 
The first thing we have to understand when we experience the consequences of sin in the world is to understand that God has spoken and told us how we are to live in this world. But if God has spoken to us what sin is and what sin isn't, the next thing that we need to know is that God sees all the sin in the world. This billboard in verse 3 is a curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. And we're going to talk about the curse part in a second, but I just want to focus on the the scroll. It goes over all of the land. God is not just a king over one particular realm, as if he's a king over just what happens inside of these walls and these people. All of creation is his. His law stands declaring what sin is and what sin isn't. And his eyes see it. I don't know if you remember last week, we talked about the eyes of God. It was a weird kind of lamp. There were seven of them. You know, I mean, these visions are a little uh, extravagant. But it says, that what, what we're getting at here is that God sees every infraction there ever was. And this is both a comfort and a terror to us. A comfort for those who have experienced injustice at the hands of your family members, at the hands of this world, at the hands of others whether by stealing or by lying or by whatever sin under heaven, nothing escapes the eyes of God. And sometimes we wonder, sometimes we wonder when we cry out whether God even sees what's going on, but he does. And the curse is coming. But this is also a terror because this means that none of us will escape the law of God. Whether we were aware of God's law when we committed the crime or not, the billboard is in authority over all of creation. The word of the Lord stands and declares what is true, and eventually it will come to land inside of our houses and the curse will be upon us. Sin is serious business, and God sees it all, and God's memory is perfect. By way of analogy, Christians will often describe the end times as everyone being resurrected by Jesus, and then there's a judgment where God himself will judge everyone. And the way that we usually describe this is that all of our sins are read out for like the whole world to hear. Now, some of this is kind of deductions. We do believe that there will be a resurrection from the dead and that there will be a final judgment, but exactly what's read out and stuff we're, we're kind of speculating. But let's just say they follow our normal kind of courtroom proceedings as we understand, and God does read out every single infraction of yours. But God also reads out every single infraction done against you. These aren't balances, to be sure. But everyone who has done something against you will have it declared. This is what happened. No matter what narrative you spin or what narrative your abusers might have spun, God will undo all of the narratives and tell the truth for what it really is. God sees sin. This brings us to our third point. If God speaks about sin and God also sees all the sin of the world, God's also going to curse the world. You know, in this vision, this scroll comes to enter, verse 4, into the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely, and it will consume the house both timber and stones. The image of consuming here is often used with fire, like how fire would consume a building. And do you know why in this vision that God gave Zechariah, that God chose to use this flying scroll and fire? Because most commentators think this. There's this story from the book of Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet. And Jeremiah was a prophet that lived uh, quite a bit before Zechariah. And Jeremiah had been given a prophecy that was written down on a scroll 
very similar to Zechariah. It was the word of God to his people, and it was delivered to the king, but this king was a wicked king. His name was Jehoiakim. And when Jehoiakim received the prophecy from Jeremiah, here's what he did. I'm just going to read it for you. This comes from uh, Jeremiah 36. As Jehudi read three or four columns of this prophecy, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them in the fire of the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Jehoiakim took God's word, cut it up into pieces until it was consumed in the fire. It was Jehoiakim looking at God saying, try me. I don't think you're actually there. In some sense, God's response many years later Uh, Well, God responds here. We're going to read it in a second in Jeremiah. But he's going to respond again. He's going to use the same imagery that happens to Zechariah. He's going to reuse this imagery of this wicked king. And God says, you think you can throw my word in the fire, but my word always rules. And my word will consume. It will do what I set out for it to do. And it will not return to me void. To finish the story of uh, Jeremiah 36, so going back in time again. uh, God sends another prophecy, and this is what he says. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I pronounced against them. God's curse declared. God's word may have been disregarded by Jehoiakim, but God's word would lodge inside of the house of Jehoiakim and consume it from the inside out. His children wouldn't sit on the throne. His dead body would be cast out into the heat and frost. Offspring and servants punished, including his people, his city, and his nation. God's curse against sin, though, doesn't just stop with this imagery of the flying scroll lodging in a house and consuming it. We have the rest of our passage, and I know you might be thinking, like, man, we've got a lot of this passage to cover, but I'm going to do it really quickly. Don't worry. This next part of Zechariah uh, chapter 5 is really interesting. Starting in verse 6, he's shown a basket. And this was probably a pretty large basket that was kind of worn on the back uh, when you were harvesting grain, and then you would store it in there, and then you would carry that in. So it was, it was designed to hold a lot of stuff, okay? But there's a lead cover over it. And when this cover is lifted, behold, there's a woman in there. But verse 8, this woman is called wickedness, and the basket is called iniquity. And the wickedness and iniquity, or wickedness, had to be thrust back into the basket of iniquity and covered with this leaden lid and then carried away. Now, we're going to cover uh, some of these images. I'm not going to have time to go over every single detail in this passage and how it connects to other stories in Scripture. But first, I just wanted to talk about one thing, which is that often in Scripture, Babylon... Uh, is, person- is the enemy of God's people. It's just like used as just a name. Like everything that's against God's people is Babylon because by this time, Babylon had already kind of failed as a state and the Persians were actually in power. But throughout scripture, Babylon is often personified as a woman. This is not because God thinks that women are inherently wicked or that they better represent wickedness or something. After all, it's two women who come and take the wickedness away. It's simply the analogy that's used. So I just wanted to acknowledge that because sometimes we get a little confused. We're like, man, this is weird. Why'd they, why'd they pick a woman? But it's just, we see this later, not only in Zechariah, we see it in other Old Testament prophets, and we see it again in Revelation in the New Testament. Babylon's personified as a woman. Next, we have to talk about location. 
So far in chapter 5, things have been going out. Have you noticed that? The scroll is going out, the basket is coming out, and then it's being carried away. Everything is going out. Where's it going out from? Well, the previous chapters of Zechariah, we've been talking a lot about the temple. Because the temple had been destroyed brick by brick by the Babylonians, but the Persians had let people go back, and they're trying to rebuild it. They're having a hard time. And so it seems that what is going out of the temple is this word of God on the flying scroll. It's coming out of the house of the Lord, and it's consuming all their houses that are not in line with it. Similarly, though, this basket of iniquity and wickedness is coming out of the temple of the Lord. And there's something that's very important to understand here. There was iniquity and wickedness inside of the temple of God that needed to be dealt with. And the only one who could deal with it was God himself. This basket of iniquities and wickedness is going to be carried out of the temple to the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar uh, is where the Tower of Babel was built. Now we're going way back in time, all the way to Genesis. And I don't know if you guys remember the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel, but here's how it went. All of humankind got together. They only spoke one language, and they said, let us build a tower into the heavens so we can shake our fist at God. And so they build this tower, and they were like, man, this tower is great. It is so impressive. It's the biggest thing that we have ever built, ever. It is the tallest building in the world, and it was. The way that Scripture describes the story, though, is fascinating because God, it says, stoops down to see what they were doing. almost with a magnifying glass. And then he talks to himself, we might say uh, on this side of the story, knowing the, the Trinitarian God that we know. And he says, let us confuse their languages. And God does. And from that day forward, mankind was forced to spread out and could no longer work together in the same ways in wickedness because they couldn't communicate to each other anymore. Their wickedness was in some sense segregated into different groups. <laughs> the land of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was built, would be representative for the land of Babylon in general. So again, this name that is just the enemies of God's people, right? This basket of iniquity and wickedness is coming out of the land of God's people, and it's being carried to Babylon. It's going to be put in a house. And we learn from Zechariah and from other prophets that this house in Babylon will not stand against God's wrath in the day of judgment. For God to protect his people from his holy wrath. He needed to remove the basket of iniquities and wickedness from them and deal with it from afar. The most important thing that God's, God does concerning sin, although it's, it's very important, is not necessarily to speak against it and tell us what it is. We, it's very important that we know that. It's not even most important that he sees it, although it gives us great comfort that he does. Nor is it even most important that he curses it and his promises to destroy it. The most important thing that God does with sin is that he removes it from his people. Being underneath the law of God, under the billboard of, of these curses of God's law, uh, is described in other places of the Bible as being a curse. Because we cannot do what we want to do, but the very things that we do not want to do is what we keep on doing. And if this is the curse that we are under, if we can't do the things that we want to do, we cry out with Paul, 
O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? So Paul tells elsewhere in Galatians 3, and he's talking about the curse of the law. This is how he describes it. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, because it says the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the law is according to the one who does them. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ himself undertook the curse of the law, became the curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come to his people. Do you know what the blessing of Abraham is? Living peacefully in the land of God without enemies. Where God's dwelling place, his temple, is built again, and where we dwell with him face to face. Christ became the curse of the law so that this fulfillment of promise to Abraham might come true through him to us. So that sin might finally be dealt with and removed. Now, if this is true, if Christ really did do these things, why do we still experience these consequences of sin? We're saved, right? That's, what, that's the language we use. I've been saved by the blood of Christ. Why these consequences of sin? And one pastor said it this way, and I thought it was uh, very helpful, so I'm, I'm just going to read it. He said, Suffering and death in the path of obedience to Christ is not only the price of missions, as if missions is something that we get to do after we have suffered and paid for it. It is the means of mission. God has ordained that in our own suffering, we complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by showing them to the world. The Apostle Paul states this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church. Even to Zechariah's people who were being murdered while trying to defend the temple that God told them to build, their suffering and death was declarative to the world. Declarative that a new reign had come. That this billboard in the sky was meaningful, but what had been fulfilled by someone else. And that there was a way out from underneath it than our own performance. That we could be called children of the living God. That all of our sufferings and death would somehow make sense in Jesus. And so in relation to the consequences of our sin, I want you to think back to those uh, images that you thought of in your extended family in some sense. If you're weighed down by the heaviness of your own sin, if the flying billboard of God's law, not just these two uh, commandments, uh, but, but, but all of God's law, if it weighs heavy upon your heart because you know the ways that you have failed, look to Jesus and see how he became the curse for you. If you've been sinned against, wounded and harmed and abused by other sins, know that God sees it, and God will not fail to execute justice. Though his timeline for justice is probably much longer than yours, there will come a day where justice will be served, all stories undone, and the truth seen for what it really is. 
We can't chop up his word and toss it into the fire. If you're experiencing the sufferings of this world that are a consequence of sin, the death, the mourning, and the heartache, the pain, and the longing, the despair, and hopelessness, know that God in Christ is removing once and for all iniquities and wickedness from his people. And know that God in Christ is bringing all stories to fulfillment in him. He's bringing all stories of pain and suffering to his glory. So that in the end, the name of Jesus Christ might be high and lifted up. And so that in the end, you may hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Of course, the only reason that we hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant, is because Jesus has definitively, by his body and his blood, purchased us and removed us out from underneath of the curse of the law. Becoming the curse for us, he then gave us his life. And he said, what was mine is now yours. Everything that I was entitled to, the life that I was entitled to, is now yours. Isaiah will describe it this way, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ, in some sense, was the basket that would go into death itself and carry wickedness and iniquities away from his people so that they might be washed white as snow. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. If you're a Christian and you've been united to Jesus' body and blood in baptism, then this body and blood by baptism, then this table is for you. Uh, If not, we ask you to refrain from participating in this meal. Um... Because declaring something with your outward actions that is not an inward reality would would be lying. And God says, don't do that. (laughs) He does invite you to explore any questions that you have with him, and so I invite you. I would love to answer any questions you have about how his body and his blood are sufficient to remove us from the curse of the law, to wash us clean, and to make us part of his people where there will be no more sin. In a moment, I will pray, and then we can come down the center aisle. And we can go to this uh, serving station over here uh, or right here. If you require gluten-free, it is at that station over there. So you're going to want to make sure you head that way. And then there is red wine and clear grape juice. Uh, If you would, please take up according to your conscience. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are a people who need our iniquities and wickedness removed from us. We need to be saved from the curse of the law, the consuming fire of judgment. And as we come to this table... We ask that we might truly, from the heart, be able to declare anew our dependence upon the broken body and the shed blood of Christ alone for our salvation, that by his wounds we are indeed healed. We ask this in Jesus' name.